0: My Patriot Supply also has solar power generators, water filtration units, biomass stoves, heirloom seeds, and critical survival gear. Shop MyPatriotSupply.com today. MyPatriotSupply.com.
1: I'm Neil Zacharias and you're listening to Eat for the Planet. On this show, we try to answer the question. How can we eat in a way that nourishes us without starving the planet? The show features conversations with food industry leaders, health and sustainability experts, as well as entrepreneurs and creative minds who are redefining the future of food. JC Rees is the co-founder and research director of the Sentience Institute, a nonprofit think tank researching how social movements succeed in expanding humanity's moral circle using the perspective of effective altruism. He is also the author of the forthcoming book The End of Animal Farming, which is set to be released in November 2018, that illuminates humanity's transition to an animal-free food system. In this episode, we go deep into some really important topics that I haven't previously discussed on this podcast, but are all tied to our food system and the future of food. Here's what we covered in the conversation. Whether there are technologies being developed, especially genetic engineering technology in animal farming, that may prove to be a hindrance to the adoption of clean meat and plant-based proteins. What is the role of farm animal advocates when large-scale farming of animals goes away? How to select the best animal charities to donate to? How can people who want to donate their money to charities evaluate the best organizations to support that will most effectively use their money? We also get into some amazing research his nonprofit has done, which found that 50% of Americans want to ban slaughterhouses, as well as the work he's doing to expand society's moral circle and what's the best way to message it to bring about social change. Lastly, we get into how to prepare society for a future with artificial intelligence. Through his work with the Sentience Institute, JC has come to the conclusion that we are already on a path towards ending animal farming. And as hard as that may be to believe, once you listen to this episode, you'll understand why he is probably right. Before we get into today's interview, I wanted to tell you about something I've been hooked on to lately. If you've listened to this podcast long enough, you've probably heard me talk about how functional foods or foods that offer health benefits beyond providing essential nutrients are a big trend that is here to stay. I personally got very interested in this sub-segment of the food space about a year ago and started researching the benefits of a key ingredient in functional foods called adaptogens. Adaptogens are natural substances that help normalize your body's imbalances and have the ability to calm you down and boost your energy at the same time without being overstimulating. These substances are called adaptogens because of their unique ability to adapt their function according to your body's specific needs. They have been used for centuries in Eastern medicine, and research shows that different types of adaptogenic herbs and mushrooms have incredible benefits for your brain, hormones, immune system, energy levels, and mood. I also learned that if you want to experience the functional benefits of adaptogens, they needed to be consumed on a fairly regular basis. The problem was, the products that I found either didn't taste great or weren't in a form I could consume conveniently. That's until I discovered a company called Four Sigmatic. Four Sigmatic makes adaptogenic mushroom coffees, elixirs, teas, and other superfood blends that taste really good. I usually drink their Cordyceps elixir or a Cordyceps and Chaga mushroom-infused coffee in the morning, and have a lion's mane mushroom elixir midday, sometimes even before podcast recordings. I find it just makes me more focused and clear without the unnecessary caffeine jitters followed by the inevitable crash. They also sell a delicious hot cacao with reishi mushrooms that is a great drink to wind down with after a long, hectic day. But that's just some of their many mushroom-infused products that they sell. All Four Sigmatic products are 100% vegan, and their mushroom elixirs, mushroom hot cacaos, and mushroom coffees are USDA-certified organic. I've enjoyed their products for months. And I like it so much that I personally reached out to the guys at Four Sigmatic and told them that I wanted to help spread the word about their products. The company was started by an entrepreneur from Finland who was on a mission to make medicinal mushrooms more accessible to everyone. And since their products and brand was so aligned with what I'm doing here with the Eat for the Planet movement, they were excited to offer listeners of this show 15% off all their products. To try them yourself, just go to Forsigmatic.com slash eatfortheplanet. The URL is foursigmatic, that's F-O-U-R-S-I-G-M-A-T-I-C dot com slash eatfortheplanet and you get 15% off all their products. You can also find that link in the show description and in the show notes. J.C. Reese, thanks for joining us on the E for the Plan podcast.
2: Thanks for having me.
1: J.C., you're a researcher and you've been analyzing the beginning of the end of uh, animal farming. But uh, we're in the year 2018 and the reality is that uh, 50, about say 56 billion farm animals are slaughtered on an annual basis around the world. Given that's the scale of the problem at the moment, what makes you so optimistic that we are on the path to ending animal farming? What, what,
2: why? There are a number of factors. So my research focuses generally on the expanding moral circle of humanity, and this has been for centuries moving outward and outward and outward. Um, it started with you know villages and tribes. It went to city states. Now it's at uh, the global scale at least for humans and we've already seen ma- quite massive expansions when it comes to animals just the inclusion of you know our dogs and cats at home seeing them as uh, beings or at least seeing them as um, not deserving of abuse you know you can't do anything you want with them there are certain rules that is a, is a milestone for humanity and we often don't appreciate that because we're sitting here today and, and we only see the suffering that exists now um, But we've made huge strides and I think that bodes well for future progress. In general, we kind of see these trends, um, if you've read like The Better Angels of Our Nature by Steven Pinker, things like globalization, which is leading people to hear more and more stories of other individuals. So it's only been in the past couple decades that we've started uh, being introduced to, to farmed animals' experiences themselves. We've seen this wave of undercover investigations that I think is possibly the, the most impactful thing advocates mm-hmm. have done um, so far in the farmed animal movement. And this has exposed people to not just animal welfare issues, but also public health costs, environmental costs, um, and and other issues like workers' rights. Um, And this is uh, a good sign because we have the awareness now that just needs kind of action behind it. Um, And that's what we're starting to see in, in, let's say, 2015 onwards. So we're starting to see actual policies change. We're starting to see uh, welfare and environmental regulations in place um, on factory farms. Of course, they're tiny at this stage. Um, but they're definitely in a positive direction. Um, So there's this kind of tracking of moral progress. And I think the second big stream of evidence we have is the sheer inefficiency, you could call it, of Mm -hmm. of animal products. They are simply not the most effective ways for us to get food. Um, Even if we have no concern for the environment in itself or for animals, um, we should still just switch because of efficiency, because of business, because of profitability or what have you. Um, You see this throughout history as new technologies arrive and allow us to make certain moral milestones, um, regardless of what the moral position of society is. Um, so I think you've got these two, two dueling forces here. Um, you've got the, the moral stance and the, and the efficiency of the technology, and fortunately, they're both pointing towards the end of animal farming, even if it's far away.
1: Right, so you think that, you know, I think partly I've been saying this uh, a lot, that one of the big reasons that we've seen a wave of this happening in the last few years is because people, um, thanks to the internet, To begin with people just know a lot more than they did in the past and we because of that we were able to we have things like youtube where you can quickly search for um slaughterhouse footage and and see these undercover investigations and these videos and then you have websites that are obviously uh writing about it and social media to spread it everywhere so consumers are more informed than they've ever been and i guess your second point is that you know the forces of um Innovation also at play over here because we're facing a sort of um, a practical challenge um, that has nothing to do with the sentiment of uh, wanting to help animals, but has more to do with the practicalities of uh, 10 billion people being on this planet in around 30 years. And how is it that we would feed this growing population? without completely destroying this um, our land and water and other natural resources. So, do you think that if we continue moving in the direction that we are right now, um, why is it that technology won't evolve to find newer ways to farm animals? So, um, the reason I bring that up now is because we tend to focus a lot over here on the innovation, right? We know consumers want cleaner, healthier foods. We know companies are developing, whether it's plant-based meats or other alternatives that um, are undoubtedly healthier, but also more sustainable. So they solve, they, they meet the consumer need, and they also solve this big problem. But there's other technologies out there, perhaps at early stages, um CRISPR, for example, as a gene editing technology, there's been some um, interesting research that been that has been done about the potential of genetically modifying animals to farm animals to make the end product healthier or to make it more sustainable by reducing the conversion ratio. So you know. Right now, we know animals consume way too much grain and fresh water and other natural resources. We could engineer the animals to do less of that. And from a, you know, back to your point about um, animal welfare, for example, to be able to genetically edit animals to be born without horns so you won't have to dehorn them or without beaks so you won't have to de-beak them, thereby, you know, taking away some of those horrific practices... It's still pretty creepy, but you know it is. A, a, some would argue it's it would be better. Um, what What are your thoughts on that? Do, do you get? Are you thinking about technology on all sides of the you know the spectrum right now? Because as much as we are focused on the animal free world, there is those that are maybe working on on making better ways to farm animals. I know that was a very long lead up to this question, <laughs> but. I just I thought it would be interesting to give the listener some context that you know we're not just here to talk about yeah plant based is amazing and clean meat's going to solve everything it most likely will but we have to be aware of what else is out there
2: even with the current state of factory farming most of that is driven by that you know we've already had technology that's led to um, factory farms which are are in many ways more quote unquote efficient you have to use quotes there because it's t- just talking about inputs and outputs not the ethical. Um, Aspects, Um, and we've seen you know chickens being favored because they do have a a lower ratio, something like you know one to 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 five or something um, in terms of calories in of plant based to calories out of meat um, compared to the one to thirty or Mm forty. Depending, there are many different ways to measure it um, of of cows or of pigs. Um, and I think we'll, we're going to continue to see. Unfortunately, you know, I'm I'm only an optimist when I think it's the truth. Um, I'm a pessimist when it comes to to just seeing those drives towards efficiency that are going to drive us in a negative direction. But the thing to keep in mind, at least from the long term perspective, thinking over decades or even fifty years or even centuries, is that the the end state the Most efficient way to get meat, dairy, and eggs is to do nothing except produce the meat, dairy, and eggs, Mm -hmm. Um, and that means no animal in any relevant sense. You know, if we if we used efficiency to take out their their brains so they were no longer suffering, we took out their. Um, let's say digestive tract, so they were no longer producing the manure that such an environmental danger and everything. Eventually, we just have 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 meat machines, mm-hmm. and that is what um, you know, cell cultured meat, what clean meat is. Um, so that that seems to be the end goal. Even if on the way there, as we're taking out kind of some of those aspects, let's say taking out the grassy fields, or let's say taking out certain things in the genetics, um, we'll we'll eventually get there. I think
1: that's an interesting point. What you're saying is essentially that. Even the potential, you know, gene editing technologies that exist right now and maybe maybe there's no one actually working on them or creating products with them yet, uh, at least not that I'm aware of in the US, they are all trying to solve the same problems that say clean meat or plant-based meat are trying to solve, uh, you know, other alternative proteins are trying to solve is how do you take out those... Um, the excessive use of natural resources, the inefficiencies in uh, having to grow an entire animal just to um, extract something from it, the inefficiencies of of growing soy and corn to feed those animals, um, and any I, I guess you're trying to say is that it's it's a race to solve all those problems. And the way we understand how clean meat and uh, you know plant based proteins are going to be developed are being developed today. They they are much more efficiently getting to that endpoint versus something else that exists out there. They
2: they are the endpoint.
1: They are the endpoint exactly. They they basically take away majority of those problems mm-hmm. in uh, in creating that end product, which what we want is meat, eggs, and uh, and dairy in some mm-hmm. form or milk in some form. Um, so you're saying so it's a very so I, I like this because it is not that I'm against being sentimental, but I like it because <laughs> it is uh it. When things are practical, they tend to happen because it it means it's going to happen because market forces will push them into the future and make it a possibility. So the fact that we have uh, consumers who want better and we have um, technology now that's creating products that are better, we will hopefully end up in a place where animals will slowly just be taken out of the equation. Mm -hmm. Is that really what you're, what you're trying to say about the end of animal
2: farming? I think so. And it's kind of, you might say it's a happy coincidence, you know, why are, well, of course this, um, you know, moral advocate is saying that technology is on its side, that his product is the end goal. Um, but I, I think they're actually related. It's not a surprising coincidence because the sentience you have there, the, the complexity, the richness of, of animal life, is what makes it inefficient these are these are the same thing um so as we're going to a to a non-sentient process like we could say the way plants you know plant farming works um that that is the end goal and it's the it's the end goal morally and it's the end goal technologically and and those are the same thing
1: got it right so what will be the role of um farm animal activists um in this new future that we're heading in um what role will they play
2: yeah, I mean, as someone who is 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 well versed in the massive, massive harms of animal agriculture, I'd be totally content for those farmed animal <laughs> advocates to take take the year off, take the decade off, go work on another issue, go party on on and <laughs> uh, and just celebrate. Um, but I think that um, the moral circle is is a long project. Mm-hmm. It was started. You know, many, many centuries ago, and it will continue for for potentially millions of years into the future. Um, and I think we'll see transitions um, from farmed animal advocates to new issues as farmed animals go away. Uh, I mean, that's another one of these kind of unfortunate things that I am willing to admit is just we're not going to have farmed animals, and at least the scale we have them today. Um, so I, I'd be content for, for farmed animal advocates to work on other issues. But I think there's still a long road for the technology, and, and that road will be peppered with advocacy struggles you'll see when the first um, let's say clean meat products come to market somebody will need to be there explaining the benefits somebody will need to be there fighting the regulatory struggles fighting against whatever meat industries haven't gotten on board yet um, or whatever meat companies haven't gotten on board Um, and and there will still be a big role for advocates i think you'll see them transition into kind of more the animal-free food movement or the, the technology advocates movement, more so than the, what they are now, which is purely kind of a moral animal movement, um, but that will still be activism. It'll still require the same skill set. You know, a, uh, an organization right now that's working on welfare reforms um, is building uh, infrastructure. They're building connections. They're building relationships with journalists, with companies um, that will allow them to, to take on analogous struggles for the adoption of animal-free food. Um, So I think it's going to be seamless in that sense. People just continue doing the same sorts of things that they've been doing.
1: Yeah. You know, a great example, of course, is um, the Good Food Institute and New Crop Capital emerged out of Mercy for Animals. It's kind of a lot of the people working there, some of the leaders, obviously, are former animal advocates. I wouldn't say former. They're still animal advocates. They're just applying their skills to do um, things that are slightly different than what they used to do before where they're focused on um innovation and and institutional change versus uh trying to convince people to care about animals and to eat differently Mm -hmm. um so that's a potential you know pivot for some animal charities but you know if you were i know you're a, a young activist um and you have your own nonprofit as well what do you think are should people be focused you know if someone's thinking about dedicating the rest of their career to, um, to solving this issue. Um, Where would you tell them to spend their time?
2: Yeah. So, of course, I have to qualify by saying Mm -hmm. there's huge variation in personal fit, but assuming they're completely generic, they have equal skill sets, equal interest in everything. um, I think there's a case for social change, for advocacy, Um, whether that's something like media, like what you do, or whether it's research like what I do, or whether it's the, the technology advocacy like Good Food Institute does. And the main reason for this is looking at the other forces that are involved, the other people, and seeing what they're doing and seeing where there's a gap, where there's white space, Mm -hmm. um, where there's a niche for you to fill. Um, And you have so many people who... um, care about animals, care about the environment, but are mainly just looking to make a ton of money. Um, and that's fantastic. I love for them to be on board. And what they're going to be doing is, is founding, supporting, investing in companies. Um, right now, it's a bit different because um, it's not a sure enough bet. You know, those people who want to make tons of money are, are, are more risk averse than the advocates. Um, but, but over time, you're going to see that space fill up. You're going to see the big meat companies take the lead on at least production and distribution, if not the research and everything else. Um, but you'll still see a gap Uh, a need for for advocates so if someone's really dedicated and they'd be content in in both scenarios i i think social change would probably be the way to go
1: yeah and you know we're reaching an interesting point where if you are passionate about doing good in the world you can um you can apply those skills in so many different areas you don't have to go and um you know be an quote-unquote activist Mm -hmm. and you know i think we are all activists in some ways. You can be an activist and a CEO of a, of a, a billion dollar company, and you can use your business to to do change and and make profit. Uh, so we're we're entering into interesting times, and of course, I've featured a lot of those companies on this uh, podcast. But it's um, you know, my goal today was to be able to step back and see what it is that's really happening over here. Where do people fit in? What is the future going to look like? Um, so let's continue talking about you know animal charities since we're sort of on that topic. You know, one of the other things that I always wonder is, um, and I ask this obviously because I know you've been involved in this work, um, is how do how does a end consumer or anyone who's interested in using their resources, their money, to do good by donating it to a relevant charity? How did they evaluate? Whether their money is being put to good use or being wasted on um, overhead at those charities or or galas or I don't know. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> unnecessary expenditure. Yeah,
2: yeah. I mean, it's it's a hugely complex topic, and it's so complex, in fact, that I think most people should should. Uh, delegate this decision to, to other people, or at least the, the digging itself. Um, you know, I like people who are researching charities, but I think in general, um, there should be organizations and nonprofits doing that. And fortunately, there, there are several. So when it comes to just kind of is this uh, charity uh, a bad egg? Are they breaking their fiduciary duties or what have you? Um, you have the Guide Star and you have the Charity Navigator and these groups that are charity watchdogs, so to speak. Um, and that's useful. That's a, that's a nice bar to have met for a charity. Um, but if you're really wanting to do the most good, um, there's an organization called Animal Charity Evaluators that was founded for this reason—to—to—to um, to, to find at least for people who want to help animals. Um, for if your goal is environmentalism, it's a bit more complicated um, to find the most effective uses the the biggest bang for their buck um, and and they've selected for example the good food Institute the charity you mentioned already um, I think that's a, a very solid bet uh, they do wonderful work they're leveraging this this new um, technology that you know they're using the leverage of those business people who want to throw their money in and you end up getting this kind of multiplying effect um, that's really impactful that's something that you know uh, donors should look for is 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 this charity doing something beyond just spending their money for a one-to-one benefit for for animals or the environment. Um, In their case, they're spending a dollar that then starts a company that then raises $10, that then inspires other companies that raise their own $10, Mm -hmm. and you get hundreds and thousands of of impact units, you could say. Um, So I I think that would be the best thing to do. Um, If people have more specific things that they want to fund, have conversations about it, talk to people at the charities, engage with advocates who are thinking about these things. You know, if what you really want to support is um let's say uh, fish welfare um, you know fish are these really neglected uh, animals within the food system they hardly get even credit from uh, dedicated advocates like you and me um, but you might be able to find a charity that's working specifically on that and I, I I have tons of research colleagues who spend a lot of their time thinking about the most effective ways to help fish and if you just have those conversations you can find a charity that that suits your interests
1: got it right and you do and this research is done by um, looking into their you know their their budgets, where they spend their money, uh, sources of donation? What's what's the kind of process?
2: Yeah, so I mean, that's what you want to do from the fiduciary standard. Mm -hmm. Um, And for the impact standard, basically what you're doing is a big... Back of the envelope calculation, yeah. you're looking at inputs, which is which is uh, budget in most cases, sometimes it's staff labor hours or something, um, and then outputs. <laughs> so you want to look at the outcomes that they're creating. Uh, sometimes these are very difficult to measure. You know, it might be a yeah. new policy where you don't really know how many animals are affected, um, but you have to just take your best guess. There's no extra option of, well, we don't know, so I don't, let's just throw our hands in the air and throw our money wherever we want. I mean, if, if you want to do that, that's okay, um, but I think we should still take our best guess even for those really speculative things. Um, so with the case of Good Food Institute, you might look at, um, well, how many companies have they actually helped found? Mm-hmm. You know, How many companies would credit um, their uh, initial startup on Good Food Institute where they wouldn't have done it otherwise, or at least it's likely that they wouldn't have done it otherwise? And then you could come up with some broad sense of well, how much do I value a company? How much do I value the the existence of let's say Memphis Meats compared to uh, you know new environmental policy? Um, and then you look at other factors. So they probably aren't just founding that company, but in founding them, they had lots of conversations where they influenced, let's say, an environmental scientist to write a new report on the environmental harm of, of animal agriculture. And you would assess that too. Uh, but you end up kind of with just a big spreadsheet. And if you go to Animal Charity Evaluator's website, you can see this. And if you go to you know the website of Sentience Institute, you can see tons and tons of spreadsheets doing exactly this sort of thing. Um, it's just putting a best guess on things. Oftentimes that's intuitive. If it's something that we can run an actual scientific experiment on, we will. So, for example, if, if what the charity is doing is is passing out leaflets or running online ads where they're trying to get individuals to adopt plant-based diets, uh, you could run an experiment where you show those ads to some people, don't show them to other people, and then compare the diet change between the two groups. Um, people are working on that. It's, of course, heart easier said than done, um, but that's showing some impact of those interventions.
1: Oh, that's really interesting. No, And so when you were thinking about... Um... Getting involved in this space and using your skills and your background to start something or um, to help in some way. Well, why did you choose research? Is that just because that's what you, your background um, in college was in? What was the specific need you were hoping to solve with the start of your own nonprofit? Maybe you can tell us more about that.
2: Yeah, yeah. So I was working for Animal Charity Evaluators um, mm-hmm. and doing what I thought was great work with them. I think they're still doing fantastic work. Um, they're fulfilling an important niche in the community of... Um, bringing in the broad animal movement towards the most effective strategies to help animals you know as both of us know that's often farmed animals helping them but it could also be wild animals or some other projects um i thought that was great work but um i was a researcher i was 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 uh, helping them fill their goals um but i thought i could do more by starting a new organization and i could have that leverage that we've been talking about um so we uh, my um, co-founder and i founded sentience institute that's doing research um, on the broader aspect of the expanding moral circle, so rather than just looking at you know what charity is most effective today, which is of course valuable, but mm-hmm. is already being done by by ACE, um, we're looking at how can the movement in the long run create the best impact for for animals for all sentient beings? How can we actually end animal farming down the road? How can we make sure that society is in a place uh, hundred years from now where when the next factory farming emerges, maybe because of those efficiency considerations we discussed, um, we need a new movement to tackle it. How can we we position future advocates to make the biggest difference there? Um, So I think we're kind of at that long-term intersection, but it's it's just a matter of of filling a niche. And yeah, like you said, I had a research skill set. I had the kind of nonprofit operations background. I, I wasn't a business person. And I wasn't as good for that. Um, all of these things kind of coalesced, and I think many people will find that something like this emerges for them. And for me, it was you know my second job. I think some people will start out at an organization and then realize, wow, I'm actually a really good fit for starting a new business or a new mm-hmm. nonprofit. Um, so so you don't have to immediately jump into the space doing something new, starting something. Um, but but keep your keep your eyes open and try to find something like that is. I think a great idea.
1: Yeah. In terms of the research that you've done so far, can you tell us more about that and who would be the end? Um, who's using that data that you have gathered as part of um, some of the surveys that you've done? Um, how, how would you assess the impact of that so far and what have you learned?
2: Yeah. So we are working to assess our own impact, of course, a mm-hmm. research organization. Um, we we um, are doing a survey probably over the next month on leaders in in this community, people who could use our research. So for example, um, Bruce Friedrich at the Good Food Institute. We'll survey him, see if our research has been useful. Um, some of the people leading the companies, some of the people leading the, the farmed animal welfare nonprofits, um, and we'll see if we're having an impact through them. But the sort of research we produce is, uh, I think the main thing is case studies. Um, so there there are many examples throughout history of things like the things we want to do. And it seems kind of silly to to just be um, reinventing the wheel, you know, starting this all anew, when there's, there's literally centuries of data showing what's worked and what hasn't. Um, of course, those all come with important qualifications. So, um, for example, we published a case study, the British anti-slavery movement. Um, this is a, an extremely interesting movement because mm-hmm. it was kind of the first of the modern moral circle expansions. Um, you know, people were taking... Uh, certain humans who are treated as legal things and, and breaking them through this barrier towards legal persons um, and giving them standing in courts, giving them the right to bodily liberty, which just means they can't be enslaved or imprisoned uh, unjustly. Um, and, and we can learn how did they do that um, because they were, you know, they had nobody to learn from. Essentially, they had to start it all on their own. Um, so anyway, that, that's one of our first case studies we put out. We also did nuclear energy. Mm-hmm. So nuclear energy is interesting because it's a, it's a controversial technology that's been w- very quickly adopted in some places. So France went all the way up to 70 to something percent of uh, their nuclear power coming from, or from their energy sorry, 70-something percent of their energy coming from nuclear power, whereas the U.S. has stalled out at, I think, just over 20 percent. Um, so why is this the case? What makes technologies take off in some places and, and not in others? Whether it's a good technology or, or a bad technology, just studying this phenomenon of, of, of technology adoption can help you learn, well, if, if I'm a big advocate for clean meat, how do I make sure that that's adopted? How do I make sure that that's like France and not like the U.S.? Mm-hmm. Um, or if I want to keep a technology like let's say factory farming um, from being adopted how do I make sure it's more like the U.S. and, and less like uh, France in that okay. example um, and then as you touched on, the other thing we do is is quantitative research. So mm-hmm. this can be polls. Um, what we did last year was survey U.S. attitudes towards animal farming and towards animal free food. Um, so we asked them questions like, um, do you are you trying to move towards um, a plant based diet? Are you trying to eat you know, fewer meat, dairy and eggs and more? And we said beans, um, fruits, vegetables, grains. Um, and we got most people saying that they they are trying to do that. It's like um, over fifty percent or
1: something, right? I think so. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Um, we also asked. Uh, it's important for social change to know not just what people are doing themselves, but what they think other people should do. Mm. So we also asked that version of the question and got positive results. Um, and then I think the big result that, that surprised a lot of people was we asked people, do you support a ban on slaughterhouses? <laughs> um, and I, I think you've already heard it. So usually I'll ask people to guess. And then um, I think whenever I was asking people that, I got responses between 5 and 20%. Um, 47% mm-hmm. of people say they support a ban on slaughterhouses. Um, and this month, that study was replicated by some agricultural economists who found that um, not only do that many people say they want to ban slaughterhouses, but if you ask them, do you appreciate, do you understand that banning slaughterhouses means not eating meat? I mean, ignoring the clean yeah. meat question for now, 72.9% um, of people say yes. Yeah, I, I fully understand that. And wow. they still want to ban slaughterhouses. Mm-hmm. And these
1: um, are people who obviously are uh, consuming meat right now and our are-
2: it's a representative sample of the U.S. Mm-hmm. population, so presumably ninety-five percent or something would be. How many?
1: It was about a thousand people surveyed.
2: A thousand people. Yeah, we had a margin of error of something like three mm-hmm. percent. Um, we published our full methodology. It was it was yeah. it was sound and everything. Um, so the big conclusion for for people like. Uh, if they're at the Good Food Institute or wherever. Is that, even if
1: you're like a food startup, how does that, that's an interesting, you know, those those stats are very interesting. It makes you really think about everything and how to message things.
2: Yeah, it, it can make you stronger in your messaging, mm-hmm. I think is the big take home. Uh, you can get support for saying things like, I mean, maybe if you're a business, you want to say in factory farming, not into all animal farming, mm-hmm. um, but you don't have to just say, you know, eat less meat. You can say, no, our actual end goal is to take down this industry. Um, and you've seen some people, I think Pat Brown and Impossible Food's said this that yeah. he wants to, to to end animal farming with his company and i think this this lends evidence towards those um messaging strategies right but you know it, it, do you know why the people were against
1: slaughterhouses was there was it because uh they didn't want animals to be killed or they their understanding of slaughterhouses what it was that animals are tortured there or were they sustainability concerns do any way for us to know that
2: we could ask follow-up questions mm-hmm. later. I mean, we did ask them several questions. So we also asked them, um, do you support a ban on factory farming? Uh, which was around the same uh, mm-hmm. answer, actually. Um, and then do you support a ban on animal farming? Um, which which is the strongest wording. You know, it's very clear, okay, if we're not farming animals, we're not eating animal products. And um, for the animal farming one, it was 33% support a ban. Um, so See. you might say those are the people who fully appreciated. Um, <laughs> because if, if you're just looking at the question of, well, when you answered that question about banning slaughterhouses, do you, did you understand that it would mean not eating meat? Mm-hmm. You also have a, you could say, a bias of people not wanting to sound stupid. They want to say, like, right. oh, of course I understood the question. I, I'm not an idiot. I didn't think slaughterhouses, uh-huh. you know, you could somehow get your meat other ways. I mean, yeah. in theory, maybe you could. Um But anyway, so the 33% might be one of the lower metrics, Um, and that suggests that lots of people do genuinely want to ban this institution. And and
1: then I think another interesting one, there was the question around, um, and I'm paraphrasing, obviously I don't remember the exact question. But do you try to buy um, meat or animal products that are more humanely produced? And I think it was
2: seventy five percent or something that said they do exactly. And it wasn't just try; it was it was do. You do usually you. buy, or do the animals and you know from the, the meat that you purchase <laughs> usually come from those farms. And this is this is a really interesting result for for farm animal advocates because we've spent years, we've spent decades showing people and telling them that their meat is coming from factory farms. You know, every undercover uh, mm-hmm. video that comes out is showing these really horrific conditions. and this this could suggest one of two things, either, we're just not getting it out enough. Maybe uh, even though we see tons of views on these videos, they're all the same bubble, and it's just not reaching society as a whole. Maybe it's not reaching, you know, conservatives. It's just reaching liberals or something like that. Um, but it could also result that there's um, what we call a psychological refuge. So people are just resistant to that information hmm. because if they accepted that they were eating factory farm uh meat and and dairy and eggs that would require them to admit that there's a conflict between their values and behavior they are harming animals and maybe people are just so resistant that their subconscious is you know creating a refuge that's telling (laughs) them everything's okay the animals are treated well um i i tend to put a lot of weight on on the latter hypothesis just because the former um we we, there have been so many views it's been on so many news networks there's tons of information out there
1: that's really interesting but maybe another thing have you thought about it that perhaps they think they are buying something that is um, better than what's coming out of factory farms, and maybe they're, that's the case because when they walk into a grocery store, they see labels like uh, cage free and um, you know free range, and somehow assume that by buying those products, they are doing something that is more humane. And mm-hmm. um, as I think we've all learned, that some of those labels are still. Uh, products that are produced in factory farms which is where nearly 99 percent of uh, meat eggs and dairy at least in uh, the u.s comes from Mm -hmm. so you know if there's 99 percent of meat eggs and dairy in the u.s coming from factory farms how on earth are 75 percent of the u.s population potentially buying humanely raised um animal products.
2: Yeah, exactly. That's the huge conflict. I, I think most people though aren't even buying those products. Mm-hmm. Um when we look at the actual sales data for for organic or grass fed or something, it's still, you know, definitely less than five percent, usually less than than one percent of 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 market share. Um and, and that indicates that Maybe it's just the fact that there are pictures of green pastures in the store. You know, it's mm, not even, people true. aren't even like <laughs> fully convinced that they're purchasing the humane product. They're just in an ambiance. Uh, you know, they've seen the, I don't know, Hillshire Farms commercials mm-hmm. or what have you saying that, um, you know, showing pictures of cows on grass or green pastures or what have you. Um, so it's it's a really dangerous situation. I think it suggests yeah. that we have to do something more than than just spreading awareness.
1: You know, and also, you know, I always, I, I really love to think about how branding plays a factor in everything i'm glad you brought up the um, idyllic farm images you know i think there's i think there's been some research done around this too is that things that are um sold in um you know with less plastic with brown packaging mm-hmm. appears to be more eco-friendly and by virtue of that people assume is is better for you and better for the planet so um, there's these subtle tricks that you can use to make your products seem um, more authentic and 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 good when in fact it's literally the same thing that everyone else is buying. And I think you know another point to keep in mind for those that are listening that consume meat. I think it's important for us to talk about this. Is the fact that I mentioned the stat about 99% of, um, of animal products that come from factory farms, that's really the, the issue now. And, you know, I know a lot of people may assume that or may, may think they're doing the right thing by buying from a local producer, which is fine for them if that's the choice they, they can make and they can afford we have to really take a step back and look at the global problem right now. And you uh, know we started off with this um, to talk about the state of the planet today, the state of, um, of farming overall. And if we're going to get the entire planet in the next 30 years to do something sustainable, the much better choice, the much scalable choice is for them to shift away from animal products versus trying to convince everyone to buy the grass-fed, pasture-raised, so-called humanely-raised, we can't confirm that, I don't know, maybe you can, Um, products that are out there. And also, even if everyone could afford those products and they were more widespread, um, there's no way we can do it in a sustainable way without consuming less of it. So, you know, everything, again, points to the same solution. It points to the solution that we can't... uh, from a practical standpoint, feed this planet, protect our natural resources, and ensure some sort of um, some sort of sustainability without encouraging people to shift away from from meat, eggs, and dairy. And I think um, I like to bring that up because it isn't just about um, getting people to go vegan. And because you and I may think that's the that's what we wanted to do, and we're focusing our efforts on convincing others and focusing on companies that are developing products to meet the needs of others who may want to move away from animal products. If you want to do the right thing, the best thing for everyone globally is to shift away from animal products and in whatever extent that they can. So anyway, I didn't mean to go off on a tangent, but I think it was important to bring that up in the context of this discussion. Yeah, totally agree. Yeah, so um, in terms of... um, work that you're doing to expand the moral circle. I know you you started off with that. That to me has always been sort of a, an interesting subject because it is, um, as you outlined, it is something that has been happening without even people necessarily acknowledging that that's where we, we're going through this evolution where we start to consider the interests of other species and have been over the last several decades um, we still undoubtedly have a long way to go before everyone recognizes that humans don't have dominion necessarily over all beings on this planet and all our resources. Do you? How do you continue messaging that or talking to people about that given a lot of people are just going to be resistant to the idea? And I'll just give you some examples. A lot of people I talk to sometimes will say, well, farm, I eat farm animals because uh, they they exist for us to eat. Um, a lot of people just don't want to think about the problem, and they know it. They've seen the videos. I've sat and actually watched some of them with friends of mine who still eat meat. So, what are we missing here? And is that my my question? Is really is that a worthy effort to focus on from an advocacy perspective, or is that just going to become? The inevitable future because of innovation, because of progress from an institutional level. So what are you doing around this? And why do you think we need to still talk about expanding our moral circle?
2: Yeah, so I think there could be kind of two situations there one is that these these people who are just so resistant and are saying animals are here for us to use um are being resistant because it's been framed that the farmed animal issue for so long as a personal choice as a um this is the 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 moral the holier than now thing to do is to go vegetarian or to go vegan and you're the problem you're evil you're bad because you're not doing that and that is just on any issue that is not going to convince people, that heavy individual focus. It's its incredibly dangerous for social movements to get locked into it. Um, and if you instead use an institutional framing, I mean, oftentimes when I'm talking to people, I, I tell them about the end of animal farming. I tell them about the work I'm doing, the book I'm writing. I tell them how important it is to me, how important it is to society as a whole. And then towards the end of the conversation um they asked me like oh so like do you think i should go vegetarian i'm like oh yeah that would be great um i mean i think it's it's important that we change as a society but that's certainly a way you can play a role and they're they're totally excited about that and you know i i grew up in rural texas and i still go back there and and talk to friends and family um and they're very receptive to this message because i'm not framing it as as you're the problem i'm saying hey this huge social change is happening you can stand Mm -hmm. on the right side of history this is an exciting exciting opportunity um like one you join me and people love that. Um, however there are still some people who are not even going to change based on that. Um, I think that there are many people, for example, the people I know who who raise animals and no matter what I tell them, um, they they just are going to insist on on the, the sorts of weak arguments that you mentioned, like animals are just here for us to use. Um, I think those people just have to, to be carried along with the rest of society. I don't think that's necessarily being carried along by innovation by itself, but at least by uh, moral momentum and and by the expanding moral circle that just pushes them along. Um, so once you get to something like, let's say over 50% or over 70% of people um, being vegetarian or in some way kind of making huge steps towards this goal, you're going to have those people, you know, have three family members who are now vegetarian. They're they're probably Mm going to go vegetarian at that point. You're going to see what you might call a tipping point in the movement. Um, And I think those people, we just don't need to worry about them too much for now. We don't need to convince everyone. I I mean, for some people who are very resistant, but who are open to something else, like I know some some very wealthy people in the tech industry who would be totally willing to fund a company or willing to maybe make a very large donation. um, But they're like, oh, no, I can't because I'm not a vegetarian. (laughs) I told them, wait, I mean, just fund the company. Like that's Mm -hmm. probably a bigger impact to be honest, than your individual vegetarianism. And then maybe later they'll go vegetarian.
1: Right, right. So, you know, expanding, part of the problem with this expanding your moral circle and thinking about the interests of animals, <clears throat> excuse me, is that most humans just don't understand their p- place in the world. We, they don't understand that our existence is in uh, many ways interconnected with uh, every living thing on this planet and we somehow believe that the air that we're breathing has nothing to do with uh, the oceans or the forests, or we just don't think about it and you know it's tough to frame the issue because it either sounds too sentimental or it tends to sound too uh, abstract and spiritual in a weird sense when you're trying to tell someone think about it. When you breathe, you're breathing air that was uh, produced by other living beings. So they are basically in you, your body is 70% water. We we are made of the same thing everything is made of. Um, And our survival is dependent on all of that, right? And if we can hopefully start to expand people's understanding of their, where they fit in within a larger ecosystem, we can hopefully Get them to even consider the interests of other species. Since we're talking about the future and the challenge of understanding where humans fit within our ecosystems on this planet and our lack of understanding of uh, our place in this uh, grand scheme of things, we can't not talk about uh, what happens to us when there's a future when artificial intelligence is reality. Whether people think it's science fiction or not, I think it is inevitable and it's just a matter of when. Um, So, and I'm not talking about robots and uh, uh, Terminator style uh, global warfare, hopefully not. Um, But really when we have systems um, and businesses and uh, even perhaps our economy run by um, agents, autonomous agents that are able to make decisions without our input. And, When we are in some ways reliant on them or their direction and their control in some ways. Uh, The the challenge I think we're going to end up facing, and it intersects really well with this discussion around expanding a moral circle, is that the current moral framework by which we run this world in our our uh, economic system is uh, uh, all on greed. It doesn't factor in the externalities it doesn't factor in what the negative impacts of extracting natural resources are from the ocean or um what's the what what did what is the actual cost of killing a whale um you know today a whale is not worth much when it's alive it's only worth something when it's dead so what happens when we have ai and ai the the artificial intelligence inherits this flawed moral system where do we fit in that bigger picture and um, if that's the scenario we're dealing with we should start now to create a more of an ethical framework so that when machines take over and as crazy as that sounds they'll be able to do the right thing or they will understand what human ethics are or what what is the need for balancing extracting resources but still preserving natural forests so we can go hiking.
2: Yeah, this is a popular and very fascinating topic in the effective altruism community. So lots of the people who want to do the most good think, for example, in the past, what could people have done to really influence where the world is today? It seems like the development of, of kind of radical new technologies that exceeded the current bounds by, by some dimension, such as nuclear weapons that you know just completely changed the, the warfare landscape. Um, how that um, how you could steer those in the best direction. And right now, a lot of people think that that upcoming thing is AI for the reasons you mentioned. Um, so, so one of the things I think the main thing people are tackling is this thing called the alignment problem. Um, so just value alignment, how can we get the AI to do what we want it to do? Um, right now, it's actually a very difficult technical question, um, a mathematical and a computer science question to do something like um, make sure a, a robot that wants to I don't know, the the canonical example is a paperclip factory. So you tell the robot, produce as many paperclips as you can, or not the robot, but the artificial intelligence. Um, What's that AI gonna do? If it's a good AI, it is literally going to produce as many paperclips as it can, and this will lead to it destroying the factory to create more paperclips, and then taking over the world to create more paperclips. <laughs> and it's it's a fun example, but it points to a very real issue that it's it's not straightforward to tell AI's what we want them to do. Let's say we tell them to maximize happiness. Mm-hmm. Um, they, we don't we don't even I can't express to you right now a entirely rigorous, coherent definition of happiness. Right. So let's say that AI takes it as smiling faces, and then carpets the universe with smiling faces. That'd be terrible. <laughs> um, so so how do we avoid those sorts of outcomes? outcomes. But um, there is an added dimension of, of not just making sure it, it technically implements our morality, our maximizing happiness or what have you, but making sure that we we have the right morality when that comes along. Um, I think this has a lot to do with the feedback between innovation and between helping farmed animals and fixing the food system and our, our values in general. So I mean, I think right now, as we touched on, it's very hard for people to, to express the proper concern for farmed animals because they're eating them three times a day and because mm-hmm. those are so closely associated. So if, if we can, let's say, end animal farming by the time artificial intelligence um, you know, has its biggest impact, that can make a big difference. Um, that can make it so that we more better accommodate not just the interest of farmed animals but other populations like wild animals like um all humans you know even humans in faraway places like future humans who might exist mm-hmm. all these different dimensions of the moral circle so i think both of these are important projects and they all have to do with kind of aligning an ai and aligning in general very powerful technologies um with our values
1: yeah and i think that kind of all it um almost underscores the importance of um more research and um, kind of the work that you're doing. Uh, we need more of that because we need to start thinking about those problems outside of um, purely profit-oriented uh, motives. Um, and I think uh, if you do the right thing, we can we can end up in that place um, 30 years from now. So let's talk about that. What is your vision for the year 2050? Where would you like to see our food system if people start to expand their moral circle if uh, institutional change starts to happen um, and unfold as fast as it is happening and uh, more and more people around the world Wake up to this idea that um, animals don't need to be part of our food system. What will the world look like in 2050?
2: Am I being realistic or just aspirational?
1: Aspirational, I would say. Okay. And uh, you know, you can always always give us a realistic uh, kind of picture as well to add on to it. Yeah.
2: Yeah, I mean, aspirational and and realistically, I think mm-hmm. in the long run. So let's say, um, so I, I'm in the book I'm writing on this topic. I'm giving 2100, and that's um, called the
1: end of animal farming. The end of right? animal
2: farming. Yeah. I'm giving 2100 as the date where I think by that point will it's very hard to make predictions that long down the mm-hmm. road but we'll have seen such radical changes that i think animal farming will have ended um the prediction i line out in the book is that uh 10 to 30 years from now i think we'll see what i would call a a mixed food system uh so this is similar to at some of the coffee shops we have in, in new york city um you can go in and and you get asked what kind of milk you want and and uh you know, cow's milk is one option, maybe in another form of animal-based milk is an option, but then you also have soy, coconut, almond, and now more and more oat milk. Um, and I think we'll have that for also the burger joint down the road. They'll say, do you want that burger, you know, animal-based or plant-based or however they word it. Um, there might even be a, a cell-cultured option at that point um, that's getting popular and, and lowering in price. Um, then I think after that point, another 10 to 20 years down the road, you'll see a majority uh, plant-based food system. So this is kind of a role reversal of what we have now, or a role reversal even of that option system, where now the default is is, is plant-based. I mean, I don't think animal farming will be entirely outlawed by that point, um, but you'll, you'll have to ask specifically for the animal-based option. Um, that's kind of the rough timeline I see things happening. I think you'll see all sorts of markers along this stage. So for example, at some point, um, you'll see mandatory labeling on animal products the way we have mandatory labeling on cigarettes you'll see various taxes whether they be for the environmental harm or the animal welfare harm you'll see meat companies that are just changing their business model um, because they're identifying as protein companies not specifically as as animal Mm -hmm. factory farming companies you'll see them transitioning Um, you'll see changes already happening in, in this broader moral circle expansion so you'll see people having more concern for animals used in let's say circuses um, kind of because they're no longer eating them three times a day um, and you'll, you'll see all of these ripple changes that just widen widen I think they'll accelerate at some point so the the, the point between that mixed food system and the majority plant-based food system um, you know that 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 time gap will be shorter than current what we're doing now which is the hardest work which is building the foundation for that future social movement
1: Wow. I like that picture. I think it's, um, it's a pretty realistic one actually. Um, and so, you know, JC, this has been uh, a lot of fun. It's been exciting to sit and talk about some really deep issues and, and go into many different directions. Um, um, I think the work you're doing is is exciting and interesting, and um, we need more people to be thinking hard about these really hard problems, for uh, so that we can come up with um, simple solutions that can be scaled and applied, so that we end up in the right place um, thirty years from now when it comes to our food system, and hopefully when it comes to how we treat. Um, other sentient beings and including other humans. So, you know, I, I think this is very important work and I appreciate you coming on today.
2: Thanks for having me. I'm glad you're thinking about these questions too.
1: You've been listening to Eat for the Planet with Nil Zacharias.